welcome to the next Q&A with our friend Jeff from the Around the Circle Enneagram podcast, which you should all go listen to if you're interested in the Enneagram. Uh, this time we're going to be discussing our two-parter on the problem of evil. Uh, Jeff has a background in this problem, has done some research on it. Uh, and so this might be a little bit of a longer Q&A than we typically will have just because of both the weight of the issue and also Jeff's experience with it. Um, and he also, having been, you know, both a pastor and a philosopher, is going to have questions for both of us from those different angles. So, uh, again, off the cuff, we're not really sure what the questions are going to be here, but we're excited to uh, keep going with this. Yeah, it sounds delightful. Just doing a deep dive into the problem of evil. That sounds really <laughs> fun. <is> so, fun. <laughs> so, Jeff, bring us into your amusement world. That actually is where I start. I love this problem, and part of it is because I I end up just shutting down my emotions when I come to the problem and, mm. and tackling it much more like a puzzle. Mm. I don't think that that's necessarily the healthiest way to, to go, but that is just generally where I go. All right. um, and I do love this problem. I've taught a handful of college classes on it, studied under some folks who have done some real heavy lifting on it. With that intro, Kyle, I thought your in introduction to this was incredibly wise. Um, I, I don't think that you're going to find an intro out there that uh, that is as humble, informed, insightful as what Kyle did. I thought it was a real achievement. So, Appreciate that. Um, well, there goes the humility. <laughs> No, because I felt really inadequate about it, uh, frankly. So yeah, it's very uh, I appreciate kind. that. I think that the, if if you come came out of that with that feeling, that's probably a win because of the problem itself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And kind of as I was saying, like it, if if you jump into the horrific suffering all at once, that is part of the you know the history of our world. It's very difficult to mm -hmm. to address this cognitively. And yeah, especially as a mm -hmm. as a philosophical problem, yeah. and being emotional about this, I think I think can be very helpful. And mm -hmm. so it's a, again something I I come to the problem I think a little overly optimistic, and I really mm -hmm. like the joy of defending positions. But mm -hmm. I, I think, think you know I think there's a the place best. for that. It's just we with this particular problem, you have to be really careful that you have yep. made explicit when that place starts and stops. Um, and so yeah. as long as we're announcing, we're going to do some of that puzzle solving here. I'm, I'm fine with right. that. And as long as it's clear that that's one very small part of approaching this issue. Yep. What's hypothetical for us is not hypothetical right. for mm -hmm. others. Yeah. Right. With that in mind, Jeff, yeah. let's hear some cues. I wanted to start with you, Randy. Um, oh boy. I think there's a question that precedes the problem of evil. And it's something like, why did God make the world at all? In a lot of religious traditions... Uh, those that you know want to elevate uh, a God as creator want to answer that question as well. Just off the cuff, when you think about why did God make the world, what, what are the sort of things that come to your mind? Mm -hmm. Thanks for making that a little easier. What are the sort of thing that, things that come to mind? Um, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a biblical scholar. But in Genesis, in the Pentateuch in particular, there's a story being told. And I think that story is something like, God wanted a people to call God's own. God wanted a people to reflect God's self. God wanted a people to inhabit a place called earth who would reflect God's goodness, God's character. And I keep saying God and God's. I'm not saying he or his or whatever, because 
In Genesis 1, in the creation narrative, God is referred to as us. Let us create mankind in our image, in our own image. So I think there's a there's a celebration, a collaboration, a, a relationship, a dance. You know, the theologian called call it the perichoresis, the dance of the Trinity, the triune God. So there's this there's this beautiful relational God who wants to share God, that relational God's self. And so God creates, and he creates these little mirrors of God's self that are going to reflect God's glory and reflect God's goodness and reflect that relationship. So I think God wanted a people to of, of God's own to, to share with and to celebrate with and to love, to be the objects of, of that God's affection. Does, does that answer your question at all? I think that works great. I think it gets us moving in a, in a, down a path where some of the purposes that might be in God's heart good. in making anything at all should get elevated because so often when we come to the problem of evil, it's just we, we see the horrific suffering and then yes. why. It seems to me there's a bigger picture at hand, purposes, intentionality. It might be the case, and this would be my first question for um, Kyle, is when we come to the problem of evil, is the problem of evil, is it what is evil outside of something like meaningless pain or when you use the term evil or when it's in this context is that what you mean by evil is some pain that lacks hmm. meaning yeah i think that's the core of the most pernicious version of the problem um for me anyway it's 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 suffering not just pain because pain could be cashed out in lots of different ways um, suffering, torment, however you want to phrase it, that doesn't have a purpose. Meaningless, gratuitous, whatever word you want to use. Something that it's difficult or impossible to find a reasonable justification for, or justification that has any evidence going for it. That's the version that I think is worth philosophical attention. I'm less interested in, I don't know, things that takes on evil that see it as some kind of entity or... Um, right. something that's necessarily willful or whatever. I'm most interested in this world has a lot of suffering in it. It seems pretty clear that it could have had less. Why is it that way if God is good? And there's there seems to be a difference to me between evil and suffering. Would you agree with that? Could Yeah, there could be. You can cash out evil in lots of ways. Um, and, and, you know, it has usefulness when we want to, we're, we're fishing for a term, that is strong enough to convey the strongest possible sense of moral condemnation. When we're referring to someone like Putin or referring to someone like, you know, fill in the blank with your favorite tyrant, bad isn't enough. <laughs> you need something more than that. Something where someone has seemingly left the um, species almost in terms yeah. of... It's an adjective at that point. Yeah, their behavior is now more animal-like than human. It, it It's kind of beyond the pale of any moral critique and so we reserve that term for yeah. it and i think that's a useful use of the term but that's not exactly what i think the focus of the problem of evil should be okay i agree i think that it works as an adjective in those senses but we're talking about it now in this meaningless pain i think is yeah. is really the problem mm -hmm. so just to footnote it there there is then uh, such a thing as meaningful pain like it can be the case that suffering could have purposes and that's not part of the problem, correct? As I, it's part of some versions of the problem. It's not part of the strongest version that I think should receive philosophical attention. Are you referring right. to the guys at the gym who wear the shirt that says pain is just weakness leaving <laughs> the body? 
Okay. I I delightfully went through Schwarzenegger's book that he just wrote, and I loved the hell out of it. <laughs> nice. It came up once or twice. <laughs> Good. That's awesome. I'm glad to hear it was worthwhile. The the. Th- all right, so I have got more fire for this opinion than anything I hold, and I just hold it just I, – I, I don't know how you get around it, but can you judge somebody else's pain as meaningless as an epistemic question? I don't know that you can. I, I don't know how you would get there, but how, how can you judge someone else's pain as meaningless. So what's the context of the question? Can you set it up well, for me a little bit? If it's the case that that we're looking at the world and it's the and we see the horrific suffering and we're saying the thing that's really the problem here is that it's meaningless. It's not the suffering. It's the meaninglessness that's actually mm-hmm. the problem. But I don't know if you can judge someone else's suffering as meaningless. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you would get there. There seems to me a, a huge epistemic gulf there. So I would love to flip yeah, that. What I understand, the and meaningless is maybe not the phrase that I would choose first, but I think it's you know synonymous enough with some other terms like gratuitous that it's workable. Um, all I mean by it is it's difficult or impossible to find a justification for this instance of suffering. Um, I might describe some of my own suffering as meaningless, I think that is enough to generate the problem. If I were to describe someone else's suffering in that way and they objected to it, I would, you know, yield to their objection. But I would, you know, still push the point that there are enough cases of suffering uh, where they are bad to the extent that it's difficult or impossible to find any justification for a good God allowing this when a lesser degree of suffering would have achieved all the same ends as far as we can tell. And that's a, I want to circle back to that, uh, just to, I want to just put a pin in that, that perhaps the ends could have been achieved with less suffering. Yeah. I don't know that that's known to be true. No, I don't think and it I is. just want It's not known, and we should circle back to that. <laughs> well, we will. Um, the, even with our own pain, I'm glad that you brought up your own on this front. I'm very curious whether or not we can even judge our own pain as meaningless if you're an immortal soul. No, I don't think you are, so maybe maybe we should go back to that. <laughs> if it's the if it's the case that part of some forms of theism, the immortality of a human being mm-hmm. is part of the story. If they're immortal and they're suffering in year 20 of their immortal existence, that pain may not have purpose and meaning till they're thousands of years into eternity. And that pain at that time, even though it looks horrific and terrible when they're suffering at age 20, may have profound worth and value down their road. So I, I have, it's again an epistemic question. I have a very hard time judging pain as meaningless if it's the case that a human being is made for eternity which is part of many of the stories that are told about from theistic position. Do you have a thought mm-hmm. on that? And then I'll, I'll get you here in a second, Randy. Um, just that what is very clear to me now is that lots of pain has a, does have a clear meaning and the meaning is bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that yep. it's, um, that it's not in any way redeemed, that it's not life giving, that it's destructive all the way down. That's the apparent meaning right now and i i i just 
can't understand a view where that ever goes away. I can understand a view where uh, there's an eternal future and I can simply not envision the layers of meaning that might be laid on top of that one uh, that might recontextualize it in ways I can't imagine. But I can't even understand as coherent a view where that meaning is obliterated or undone. Uh, it just seems to me that if it's experienced that way now, then it will always have been experienced that way. And God set it up in a way that allowed it to be experienced that way, and that generates the problem. Yep. I think that's very well said, by the way. I want to start, I, I would love to circle back to that, but I do want to put that like eh, little, I, just a slight epistemic doubt that it may be the case that we can't judge the sure. meaningfulness of pain, even our own pain presently. Mm -hmm. I think that that's at least worth noting um, for me. Randy, when thinking about, again, on creation, why God creates the world at all, what is the greatest good for a human being? You've been made by God. What is, what is the, the great good that God hopes that you experience? Um, man, how do you answer that question? I would, I would just go and say that if, if the Apostle John is correct in that God is love, then the greatest thing that we can do or be or embody or, yeah, is love, is to, for a human to to dive deeply into what it means to, to love another person, to love a group, to love themselves, to love, you know, their enemy. Um, I think that's probably the highest aim of being a human being. Just to jump ahead a bit, can you can you love a person uh, without experiencing some cost? It's great. Um, you'll have to ask Kyle this because he'll give a better answer. But, <laughs> I don't know, man. But no, I think that pain and suffering is inherently woven into the reality of what it means to be God because God chose to create, I believe, humanity. And because God chose to create humanity in such a way, it means that God is inviting pain and suffering into God's own existence. And so I think if that's the case, then it's probably not possible to be in relationship, to be in a relationship based on love, unconditional love, and not experience pain. So yeah, I, th I think you could go down that, that road. I, th I think that's true. It seems to me, and I'd love your thoughts on this, Kyle. It seems to me that, and this was hinted at, but how we judge God in the problem matters. The standards by which we're saying this is what a good God would do. Mm -hmm. Would a good God maximize pleasure over pain? Is that God's target? And is that the standard by which we should judge God's actions? Or is it the case that, for example, if God was seeking to maximize the virtue of rational beings, for example, to maximize character, love, faith, mm -hmm. hope, etc. It seems our world is is prof is is very well structured to push people into spaces where they must learn, exhibit, and grow in character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm not a utilitarian, so I don't think it's maximizing pleasure. Perfect. Um, this was Kant's point, right? He thought that if you really thought that happiness was the goal nature is very poorly suited <laughs> to to construct such a thing it seems much more likely given the way things actually are that some other end was in mind and uh, kind of rational perfection was more likely um so 
yeah i'm you know ethically i'm basically a kind of deontologist so i'm fine with the foundations of that kind of view i don't think it helps with the problem of evil but maybe maybe you can spell out why you think it does uh just to circle back i think that our world is constructed in such a way that it it invites us over and again to make decisions that would you know that would be require character mm-hmm. both on the positive and negative i think people get worse in a world like ours and i think people get better mm-hmm. in a world like ours but we seldom remain static mm-hmm. that seems right it seems to me if god was trying to create a world in which god was taking beings made for eternity like god's self and they were self-choosing virtue character this world is a profound starting place because it it just invites that there there are aspects of the world that would probably be necessary for a world that had that as a goal i'll grant that much but it's that's not the full story of the world like uh, there are many other aspects that do not seem to fit well if that is in fact the goal or that go way way too far right and i want to say i i affirm that i want to get that kind of foundation if i was sitting down and saying what are some of the big ideas for if I, if we really wanted to find resolution to the problem of evil because here's the here's the the next big question i wanted to ask you all was it seems like the problem of evil isn't just a problem for theists. It seems like the problem of evil is a problem for everybody. Hmm. Like you gotta, like no matter how you come down, you have to wrestle with why is it that we suffer. So if I'm a consistent metaphysical materialist and I think that only matter and motion exists, I still need to wrestle with, with the meaninglessness of suffering because it, it seems to me, it may not be something that disproves my system, but it is something that really uh, assaults my sense of self, my humanity, my um, most of my existential mm-hmm. beliefs. Um, it it seems to me that it, it you know meaningless suffering makes life almost entirely uh, you know void of purpose. Hmm. Um, I wonder what you mean existence. by existential belief. That to me, meaningless suffering generates existentialism. <laughs> as, as I understand the history yeah. of that tradition, like it, it is the most basic fact about the world for many of those thinkers that 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 the world is suffused with pointless suffering, and that there isn't a basic meaning behind it. Now, almost what? all of them were atheists too, which I'm not. But like that fundamental recognition seems true and honest to me perhaps made best by Schopenhauer, who just had like lengthy descriptions of meaningless suffering, (laughs) just example after example after example. Um, That seems right. And uh, I I have the same respect for thinkers like that, that I would for, I don't know, somebody who's able to look soberly at their own existence and call it what it is. And um, I I think that's a fine starting place. And it's where most of them started. Um, Now, I don't I'm a theist, right? So, so I don't think that's all there is to reality, but I am also a materialist. And so I do think that, you know, the facts on the ground are, are what they are and we suffer. And some, some of that suffering is to be expected uh, just by virtue of being a material thing. Um, but when you can join that with theism, I think that does generate this unique problem. So I don't quite see why if you weren't a theist of a certain kind, you would still have to explain suffering because there it wouldn't be surprising under lots of other views 
For me, there's a Pascalian kind of argument that takes place here. That's something like if God exists, there might be meaning to the horrific suffering that we see. And that that possibility has enormous value. Mm-hmm. It, it strikes me that being a consistent metaphysical materialist, that if you just have to embrace all of this horrific suffering and life has no purpose, that seems to me, I would use the phrase, it's, it's a repugnant conclusion. It's like, <laughs> why would I want to presuppose that story? Mm-hmm. Why would I want to invest anything in that story? I would actually want to push against that story. Mm-hmm. I would be scrambling for something else. Yeah. And it, it gives me great reasons to reject materialism because there might be meaning in suffering mm-hmm. in these other stories. Yeah, I mean, there are other ways of generating meaning as a materialist. You could be Buddhist, for example. Um, yeah, that's fine. I I get the repugnance. I also think it's true. <laughs> Boom. But I, I think it's worth naming that if I if I presuppose this story, this is this is something that I have to be left with. So this is one of the values I really hold a highlight. You and I, I think, share, you had mentioned something real briefly that, like, I don't think there's any good reasons to believe in a God. Um, I think a cumulative case is real mm. interesting. I'm, 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 I, I will not tell this to anybody else, but I do think Aquinas' third way on motion really tears <laughs> me. I, I, th- I think there might be something. You know there. this is public, right? People know but, now. <laughs> it, yeah. But aside from that, um, I think I, I generally think there's not a good reason to believe in God. Um, I think God's created a world where God's hidden. Hmm. And these, if I come to the story that way, God has created a world in which God is hidden. These sorts of questions become kind of primary at this level of what am I going to presuppose? What story am I going to live in? How am I going to live given the beliefs that I have? I, I find that this is a very difficult, this is why I moved away from atheism was because of this, this spot hmm. was, I didn't, I couldn't live in that story. I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, but that was, it's just interesting that it took you away from atheism and brings more people <laughs> towards it. So that's right. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I mean, I think you're getting at maybe the problem is Kyle's uh, commitment to materialism. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the root of all sin, right? I'm a physical thing that causes all, yeah. <laughs> Randy, Kyle said something uh, in the podcast that I thought was worth talking about, and it was that God looks like crucifixion. Um, I assume that you think that seeing God is a huge part of not only our ultimate bliss, but it's like part of our, 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 our best selves will be somehow we see God and are able to see ourselves. If God looks like crucifixion, don't you need a world in which there's crucifixion in order to see God? Isn't suffering itself required, apparently? If this is who God is, is suffering not required to see God? Hmm. I think I would ask was the crucifixion something that was predetermined ahead of time or was it a response to a problem would be would be a first primary thing that i would want to get at if we were going to ask that but regardless of what the what the circumstances are the order of things i believe that god was crucified god was executed on on a cross and so that is primarily what god looks like for me the idea that god 
God looks like the cross or God is crucified. What that does for me is it makes an absurdity, which evil and violence in particular, violence to me is an absurdity. And God doesn't try to make sense of it. God doesn't try to explain it and philosophize God's way through it. God actually chooses to identify with it. And God actually chooses to take that absurdity upon God's self, which in itself is an immense, maybe the biggest absurdity you could you could think of. And in that, I think that there's some, this is where words fail me. Maybe maybe Kyle can fill them in. Maybe you, Jeff, can fill them in. Maybe, maybe it's just not possible to be filled in. Maybe this is like the deeper magic that C.S. Lewis talks about. Maybe, <laughs> maybe God dying, God being crucified is something that is so profound that kind of, that's why our theodicies don't really fit and don't really work because God's done mm-hmm. something different than explain it. God has assumed it upon God's self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I said earlier that um, the starting point of existentialism was the recognition of pointless suffering. That's true with one exception, and the one exception is Kierkegaard. And for him, this is the start. It's that God suffered. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a paradox, as he put it. It makes no rational sense, and yet it's a fact, he thought. That was presented to us. To to push into that a little bit, it seems to me that Christian theism wants to highlight a belief, and it's something like suffering is the only way to defeat evil. I think that that's core. Like the this is part of what you mentioned, Dostoevsky and the Grand Inquisitor. It's one of the reasons that you know that that's kind of there. That there there mm-hmm. has to be a different way that evil is overcome. Mm-hmm. Um, but also paired with that. It seems like Christian theology also wants to say the glory of God is only seen through God's defeat of evil. Mm-hmm. And so if you can only see God's glory th- through the defeat of evil, it, in some ways, the suffering needs to be part of the world that God mm-hmm. actualizes. Well, it is a part of the world. Whether it needs to be is a different question. It's a lot harder to in, deal with. Well, it than... needs it needs to be epistemically. If, you, if, if, if creatures like us are going to be able to see God, if that's part of our function, it seems to me you you need a world with suffering in order to see God. If that's part of who God is, I, I would yeah, I guess I don't way. see why that's the case. Like I'm willing to grant that there is suffering in this world. In this world, God uh, presumably wants to be in a relationship with those who suffer. That's going to require God's suffering. That's an easy entailment. But we're still in this world. <laughs> like we're still in Alpha. That's a philosophy joke. Like. And we, it's hard to step out of that and to know what the criteria could be for different worlds where God didn't set things up that way or at least allow them to be set up that way. My, you know, Part of my atonement theory has always been that God was crucified because that's what the Romans chose to do. And that was the instrument that they had, and God didn't resist. He absorbed it. And I think God would have absorbed any kind of violence that was thrown at God. Uh, in this world or any other, because that's the incarnational nature of God. But I don't see the step from there to incarnation entails suffering. I think God will always be incarnational, and if that requires suffering, then God will suffer. But I don't see a reason to think that suffering is like metaphysically necessary. I see, I, I see God sharing God's self um, as metaphysically necessary, given my understanding of what God is. But I don't see the suffering as necessary. I see it as contingent. And God being willing to take on the contingency. Yeah, I would say incarnation, crucifixion, sacrifice, it's all a response, not Mm -hmm. a cause. Otherwise, heaven doesn't make any sense. I mean, you don't think there's going to be 
presumably suffering, at least not in the same sense, in heaven, and yet God is still incarnational in heaven. So why here? <laughs> I would love to circle back to that uh, as well. I think that that's a spot on. The point that got brought up in my mind as you were talking is God has chosen to actualize this world, though, mm-hmm. as opposed to just any world. This brings up a, another philosophical topic in, when talking about God. Does God have foreknowledge? Mm-hmm. Is it the case that omniscience, knowing all things, does that mean that God knows all future events? And even bigger than that isn't just our world, but say it's the case that God can envision trillions and trillions and trillions of possible worlds. Mm-hmm. Does God know the outcome of of every possible world that God could actualize? Does God know all the counterfactuals might be a way that... Mm-hmm. Um, if omniscience means that God knows all the counterfactuals, God has made this world with that knowledge in mind that incarnation and suffering would would come together. Yeah. That strikes me as, I, f- I find that profound. And I'm, I'm generally of the belief that God does know all the counterfactuals. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that needs to get unpacked a little bit more. But. Yeah, we should have a whole separate episode on that eventually, I guess. But I, my view, and take it for what it's worth, I don't put a lot of weight on it, frankly. I don't think anybody can know this. Our evidence is... It's not even just indecisive. It's like almost non-existent <laughs> about this. Like the best evidence about this question is like the physics of time, <laughs> which mm-hmm. like a hundred people in the world maybe kind of understand. So my my view, which is worth almost nothing, is that God does not know all uh, future counterfactuals because not all of them have truth values. But I don't actually think that helps that much with the problem of evil because even if that's true, we're still we still got a world chock full of suffering that God should have <laughs> foreseen, well, you know, at least can, some of it. It can. This is where Leibniz's argument comes in. If if God can see all future uh, possibilities, if I make this world, this is what's going to happen. Yeah. Then God can select what Leibniz calls the best possible world. Yeah. But that presumes that. I mean, again, I'm not sure what Leibniz thought about uh, free will, but presumes that you part of what god's omniscience allowed access to was the possible decisions of free creatures under every conceivable circumstance and that's exactly what an open theist or a molinist would deny right um so there's a debate to be had there but again i don't think it necessarily solves the problem whichever way you go with it we brought up schopenhauer earlier i'm a compatibilist on these fronts but the, yeah, it yeah i don't understand be... compatibilism <laughs> Uh, no contradiction between uh, God knowing all future events yeah. and you still being free. Just because I know that the ring is going to be destroyed doesn't mean that Frodo's not free when he <laughs> grabs it and says, I'm taking this to Mordor. Sure, but it's not that hard to spell out the contradiction. But we'd have to do that in another episode. That works. Listeners, if uh, you're <laughs> getting a little bit foggy and fuzzy, I'm with you. <laughs> well, let me let me pitch it this way then. If... The the Leibniz argument I think is real interesting, and I, by the way, I think I'm I entirely affirm your thoughts on the title of God is more like an office. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a being that holds the attributes that qualify someone to be the being we call God? And I suppose I I'm sympathetic to that view. The the more Anselmian view of God is all knowing, all powerful, mm-hmm. all good. If if God exists, God has those attributes, says Leibniz. And I would love your response to, to the argument because I think it's very sticky. 
the thing about a being that has the maximum amount of knowledge is that they know all the counterfactuals, or that mm -hmm. may be the case, that omniscience means you know all the counterfactuals. And if so, you can see every possible world. And the being that's maximally good would desire that best possible world. Mm -hmm. That's what the problem of evil is. It's why didn't God create a different world? Mm -hmm. But if God knows the best possible world and is good enough to select it and obviously has the maximum amount of power, can actualize it, then if we look around and this world exists, it's that seems to me... Mm -hmm. QED, it, right? It, it, this must be the best possible world. <laughs> yeah. You're just trying it to just drop in as much obnoxious <laughs> philosophy references as you can. No, I mean, I so it. my response to the, there's a couple of responses, but the, one of them is that um, you, you can do what G.E. Moore loved to do, which was take the conclusion of someone's argument, negate it, and turn it into the premise of your own argument. So you could say, as you just did, that yeah. God is a perfect being, perfect beings can only create perfect worlds, this is the world, ergo it must be a perfect world. Or you can flip it around and say, as I would, this world obviously is not perfect, perfect being could only create a perfect world, this ain't it, so there must not be a perfect being. Or the being responsible for it must not be perfect. Um, and, and there's no, the point that G.E. Moore always made with that, whether he was aiming it at Hume or anybody, is that the evidence simply doesn't tell you which argument form is better. <laughs> um, would, and you just have back. to go on your intuitions about that. My intuition strongly points to this not being a perfect world. We haven't hit the evidential problem yet, but the, I love sitting in the rationalist tradition for a second on these fronts. But the, the difference between the perfect world and the best possible world I think is really worth slicing in right here. It seems to me the best world, possible world is different. That's fair, but you know, interpret perfect loosely as including whatever is required for the formation of whatever kind of virtues God was interested in or something like that. So this is where I think the conclusion for me, and I, by the way, I hate this conclusion when it's in freshman essays. So don't, <laughs> like, I, I think you, you have to elevate here. But the position of a faithful agnosticism, I find deeply attractive at this point in time. Mm, yeah, same. That if if God exists, God has actualized the best possible world. Mm. And despite appearances, I am hopeful in and trusting. I mean, mm -hmm. I think I think a lot of uh, the I'm trusting in god's selection process yeah at that point yeah i can't really Despite get behind that one i can hope that god is better than i have conceived and that there are reasons for this um but i can't hope this is the best i don't even know what that would mean i mean i can it's just obviously not the best <laughs> like, like, i i don't think that could be known though can that be known yeah how, how can you say can it's anything be known jeff <laughs> <laughs> like, I think we have far more than sufficient evidence to conclude that this world could be better. And it's just laughably easy to think of examples in which it could be better, even just marginally better, by any reasonable standard of better that a plurality of people could get behind. And I, I just think the weight of that is a lot more than some clever rationalistic arguments. 
um, that can just be turned on themselves. I don't know. Another thing to note about Leibniz is that he didn't have human happiness in mind. He had some weird metaphysical stuff in mind, like good-making features of a world for him were things that none of us would recognize. Fair. Like, like he was a mathematician all the way down. <laughs> he thought that like a certain kind of mathematical perfection was more valuable than human happiness, or at least something that God would aim at ahead of human happiness. So I'm not sure we yeah. want to go with his theodicy. Not everybody's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I got a question for you, Randy. The My favorite response to Leibniz's argument comes from Robert Adams, who's a Yale philosopher. He says something like this. Does God have to create the best possible world? Couldn't God create a subpar world? Because God really, 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 really likes and loves the creatures that are in that world. Mm. They're all terrible. They all do terrible things. They create pain and suffering. But there's something about all these, these people that I really like. And I want to make a world with these people I really like. Yes, with all the, the suffering that they cause. And one of the benefits to this world, says Robert Adams, is that God gets to exercise a quality. God doesn't get to exercise in the perfect world, and that is grace. Hmm. This world allows God to do something God can't do in the perfect world, and that's to lavish love on people who just don't deserve it. Another part of suffering on this front is that we get to see God and God's character. Does that move you at all? Does does the fact that in a perfect world, you don't get to ever... Would you trade... Here's, here's, here's the way I put it. Yeah. Would you trade, Randy? Uh, you would eliminate all suffering, mm -hmm. but you would never get to experience God's grace. Mm -hmm. Would you make that trade? Yeah, no. I think when you started asking your question, it, it reminded me of being a dad. And I think that's where all this stuff gets concrete and comes out of the, the esoteric clouds. It's that my kids, in some ways, are really terrible. Like, my, my kids, in different ways, are quite selfish and destructive and violent. And then branching off of those characteristics are really a, a whole, whole host of really ugly characteristics that I'm not proud of, that I don't enjoy, that I, I, I tend to get really angry at. And then if, so that if that was all that it meant to be a father, I wouldn't have had kids. Like I, I would regret being, being a father, but there's all the beauty that, that for me makes me really, really happy that I chose to be a dad, um, that my wife and I chose to have the family that we did. It's that, um, I get to, I get to have something that to me, I get to experience something that is transcendent. And that is that this like selfless, self-giving love that I, that I give to my kids and that I receive from my kids. And um, there's something about that, that act of being loved and that act of being seen as, and not even seen as, but embodying like a, we belong to one another and we share life together and what's yours is mine and what's mine is yours and i could keep going on about what it means to be a parent there's something so beautiful so valuable so life-giving so transformative in the process of being a father of being a parent that has all the shit that comes with it but because of all the goodness of course i would never trade any of those ugly moments if it meant that i had to lose all the all the beautiful moments does that get at what you're it does. Asking a bit, Justin. Do you, have, do you have thoughts on that, Kyle? 
Um, I I really like that. I've I think I've said before that the um, both the generation of the problem of evil and also the generation of any compelling response to it comes from deep intuitions we have about what we would do in certain circumstances where we had a similar amount of responsibility that God would have for birthing this world. And so the most natural metaphor is parenting. It's not the only one, right? Because there are lots of, I don't want to say that, you know, people who can't be parents or choose not to be parents can't yes. understand it in the same level. But some some aspect of having a choice over the beginning of life in some form seems to be the best inroad we have to understanding what God's possible motivations could be to making any sense of this, but also to generating the problem in the first place. So when you asked Randy, first question I think was, why did God make the world? That's immediately where my mind went. Why did I have a kid? Because that's the closest I can get to that, right? It's not really close because I'm not God <laughs> and it's it's different in some very important ways, but it's the closest I can come. Um, and the answer is I wanted somebody to share myself with and to love and to enjoy and there's an aspect of pleasure in the creation of it and all that stuff so um, I think that's absolutely on the right track and in fact I think it's the only place we can really go uh, mm -hmm. to trying to understand this at any level um, but I don't think it solves the problem <laughs> so negative <laughs> this is the only argument I know for that God loves you I think that generally we say God loves all people Jesus died for all people but if for me, if God knows all the counterfactuals and God's actualized this world, it's because you're in it. Mm -hmm. God could have easily, as was said, in terms of suffering that could have been minimized. On the flip side, you don't need to exist. I don't need to exist. God mm -hmm. actualized a world where you exist. And that mm -hmm. strikes me as really powerful if you allow for God's foreknowledge mm -hmm. in that way. Um, if we can't, I would love to pivot to the evidential problem because I think it is much more theologically, like you're looking for, scraping for, what is the answer here? What is this heaven that you're promising or what solution? What is it? What is the great good that we gain mm -hmm. from all of this horrific suffering? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of philosophers want to say the logical problem of evil, which is generally the one that's pitched most often, doesn't work, but the evidential problem is, I think, I think Kyle, I think you said this in the podcast, it, this is where like professional philosophers actually land for mm -hmm. the most part when articulating it. It's that the existence of horrific suffering makes God's existence less likely. Mm -hmm. That's not only embraced by atheists, I think that's embraced by theists and it's embraced all in the scripture all over the place, mm -hmm. it, it seems to me. Yeah. Um, the the why have you forsaken me confession that comes from mm -hmm. Christ and others ends up being I don't get it I don't get why this is this is going on yeah and so there's real meat here um, in terms of like what should we do with this and I thought your presentation of cumulative cases is exactly the right way to go here it's not one story free will um, soul making and all the rest in terms of theodicies, none of them really are the magic bullet, mm -hmm. but all of them together create what I find a really interesting world to be in. Like it's a, it's a world with depth and beauties and there's all of these overlapping pieces. And I suppose my question for you is on the cumulative case, if you say I'm, I'm taking all of the things together free will defense, soul making, you know, the fact that, that this world allows for the, for character formation and exhibition, it allows for love and the rest. 
do they have the power to overwhelm all the instances of horrific suffering? Or why don't they? I should spin it that way because mm. it felt like you had a conclusion that they don't. No, not for me. Um, not if by overwhelm you mean uh, justify or defeat. No. Um, th they might be enough to make it indecisive evidentially. I'm willing to say that. And that's why I'm not an atheist, really. If I thought it was decisive, it would be decisive in that direction, and I just wouldn't be a Christian. So I clearly think it's at least indecisive. But I just can't get away from the Dostoevsky take. Like, you look at specific instances of suffering, and you throw your best theodicy amalgamation at it, and you still have a choice that no good human would make. The the dilemma that Alyosha poses to Yvonne, put yourself in God's position, you're going to make a world full of virtue and beauty and happiness, and the cost of it is the suffering of an innocent child, do you consent to those terms? I don't consent to those terms. And so if that's the world that even the best, you know, cumulative case the odyssey gets you then i just i don't see it <laughs> i have to say no thanks strange place to to land but i'm on an island of people who defend job and uh, <laughs> just to, i'm on lots of islands apparently the book today, or the character the book <laughs> love me some job the uh, there's two windows and this actually gets at what was just said like what do you say to the person who's suffering Job is a fantastic book about what you don't say to someone in the midst <laughs> of profound suffering. Correct. But the window into Job for me, I would love your thoughts, is I think the person that wrote Job is Job. I think this is him writing his story. And I don't think he has any friends. <laughs> I think I think this is this this is what's going on. He's in imagining his heart. what a friend would have been would have been like. <laughs> these, these these aren't really friends actually. Or maybe they're himself in different yeah, voices just different within guises. himself. Yeah. Oftentimes when we suffer, we're like, "What did I do wrong?" I really want to talk to God about this. Yeah. Job in the first you know in the is sitting in the ashes of his dead children. The key for me is that Job at the end is invited by the whirlwind to stand up and go look at a new creation. It's a great resurrection image. Gird up your loins. Let me ask you some questions. And God shows him all the things that he's made. And there's one thing that God doesn't list of all the things that he's made. And the thing he doesn't list is Job. He never says, I made you. And there's something for me personally on the suffering side that God is fashioning me through the suffering that I experience. And I'm sure, like, I don't I don't know how else to say this aside from, that's my existential experience, that suffering has transformative power. I never like suffering, none of us like suffering, and I can't speak to anyone else's suffering. Um, I can only say this is the meaning that my suffering has for me in this moment. Um, the place that I experience God most is in that space, and those are quite valuable. To land, for me through this whole thing, it feels like I surrender my experience of God if I surrender suffering. Hmm. In seeing Jesus crucified, in seeing my own character formation, in the opportunities that I have to, to help those who are in really profoundly bad shape. 
all the be- uh, some of the best, most meaningful experiences in life, it seems to me, are somehow inextractably linked to suffering. Float that as an observation. Do you all have thoughts to, to close? I'll let you close, and I'll just give one pro- <laughs> the the Debbie Downer here. Um, so I I agree. I have the same experience, um, which is what again? That my experience of God and my experience of suffering are not. They're they often occur together. They're inseparable. I don't know if I want to go that far, right? Because I also have experiences of God that seem in in a, in a certain way the opposite of suffering, and I want to say that those are more suggestive for what the future might be like or what the world fundamentally is like or something like that. But, you know, the deep suffering that I have experienced remains suffused with God's presence and in some cases vice versa. Um, So I I feel you on that. I don't want to say that all suffering has some kind of redemptive role or something like it. It does seem to me that a lot of suffering is and can be used by God to grow me and I've experienced that and I'm grateful for it but then a lot of suffering just kills you (laughs) it just destroys and that's the kind that creates the problem that's the kind that I think we need to wrestle carefully with so that's the Danby Downer side of of the answer and I'll let Randy bring it home with whatever he has I am not going to be able to bring this conversation home that's for sure (laughs) Um, well I could put a question for you to bring it home. Go for it. Both Paul and I think it's in Peter say that, you know, essentially God works all things yes. together mm-hmm. for the good. Um, that this, you know, suffering leads to this, which leads to this, which leads to this. Is it is it not the case that there's something great about the hope that you can have if a God exists in the fact that even the worst thing that we experience can get transformed? Yeah, I think those are the best. My, I'll say those are my favorite ways of looking at suffering is, you know, both of those quotes from the book of Romans, that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance produces hope and hope, you know, all that stuff. I think that's Romans 5 and then Romans 8, the, all that stuff that happens to you, God is able to actually work for the good of those who love him. I don't think it's a conditional statement. I think it's just a, it's a really wise perception by Paul and maybe even inspired by the Holy Spirit that says like, look, I'm working in all of the stuff. I'm working under the surface and behind the scenes and all the, in all the ways that you can't imagine to bring about the good. I think that's what God is. One of the things that God is about in the world is like trying to take the best that humans can, can throw at the, at the world into the, like trying to be good and just make it, makes it into good. But I don't want to sit here and say that all suffering has some sort of meaning because all of my suffering has had some sort of meaning. I think that's a, I, I live in a very privileged world mm-hmm. where suffering is um, pretty limited and uh, my world is better than it's, you know, it's it's more good than bad in perf- like m- amazingly profound ways. So I would never want to take my experience and say this is, you know, the foundational formative experience that we have to to talk about but i will say i just officiated my uncle's funeral my dad's twin brother and um and never as a pastor want to officiate a funeral of a person that i loved deeply you know and family all that stuff because i I just want to grieve and i want to do that well 
Um, so I had to kind of partition it. But there was something in Paul saying, Paul is like a really real dude while he's also super idealistic and un, it's hard for me to get Paul. But I loved it when Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's something in that perspective that says Paul had a shitty life in many ways, right? Like he was a person in power and very influential, but he gave all of that up in many ways. And he goes on in some of his books kind of in grandiose ways to talk about how many times he was shipwrecked, how many times he was imprisoned, how many times he went hungry. It seems like in the beginning of the book of Philippians, Paul basically is almost talking about being suicidal at some point, um, that he was so deeply grieved in, in, in his inner man. But yet he still has the audacity to say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there's something in that perspective that that is where I rest with this problem of evil, with theodicies that, that theodicies can't get at. And that is, if God exists, if God is real, if God is who the Bible says God is, then there's hope in and outside of all suffering then there's something more, something bigger, something more beautiful, something good, and I hope something redemptive that can actually like serve to redeem all things and renew all things and can actually, like we will get to a point where things are explained and understood maybe. And in this life, we have to embrace mystery and faith and trust and hope. And these things are good things that, you know, those words are, ideas are good ideas. So, that's where this lands for me. It doesn't land in my head. It doesn't land intellectually. It doesn't land um, experientially even because, again, because of my frame of reference of who I am and where I'm located. But the scriptures speak to something bigger, something better, and something more than this world. And that for me is my theodicy, which is really <laughs> will drive philosophers nuts. <laughs> Thanks for not saying anything in response, Kyle. <laughs> I, I think that's a good place to land. I do as well. Well, thanks for listening to this Q&A session. We love this kind of dialogue. So if you have questions, you can email us at pastorandphilosopher at gmail.com. And if you submit a really good question, it might end up in one of these Q&A segments. And if you really want to go deeper, subscribe at our top tier on Patreon and just have all the chats with us you want. Cheers. Cheers. It seems as if through this whole conversation, Kyle has been trying to talk himself out of believing in God. <laughs> so why... I've experienced it as the opposite. <laughs> okay. So why do you believe in God at the end of this conversation? Yeah. I mean, it's the, I think that's one of the first questions we asked each other on the podcast. And I don't think my answer has changed really. It's just a handful of experiences that I've had. And it's general ability to make sense of my world. I don't... Um, Again, I don't think it's decisive, right? I don't think that theism is uh, the rational option. I land very much where Jeff does. Um, I wouldn't say there's no good reason, but there's no there's no like overriding reason to be a theist in my view. But I've had experiences that really seem like Jesus, and um, I can think of all sorts of ways to interpret those experiences that are evidentially equivalent to the way that I've interpreted them, and I'm fine with that. I could totally yeah. be wrong about all of it. But I don't see a good reason to move because anything I would move to would have the same issue, mm -hmm. right? There would be the same evidential 
uh, equivalence and indecisiveness and underdetermination and all that stuff. So it works for me, I guess. <laughs> all right. <laughs> it's where I land. Yeah.